Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on 7th of March 2018 at approximately 9am London time. Throughout this podcast we've mainly been focusing on the work of academics. However, there's some amazing research being done out there by people outside of academia. One of the people... uh, who is thriving at this, who is leading the way, is the journalist Jason Burke. And it's my great privilege and honor to welcome Jason onto today's podcast. For those of you who don't know him, Jason is the Africa correspondent uh, with the Guardian newspaper. Previous to this, he was the paper's South Asia correspondent. And in his time as a foreign correspondent, he's covered stories throughout the Middle East, Europe, and South Asia. And he's written extensively on Islamic extremism and, among numerous other conflicts, covered the wars uh, of 2001 in Afghanistan and 2003 in Iraq. He is the author of four books, and most recently, The Threat from Islamic Militancy. I'm sure you're uh, all aware of his other books uh, in relation to Al-Qaeda, the 9-11 wars, and the road to Kandahar as well. Jason, thanks so much for being on today's podcast. It's a great pleasure. Fantastic to be here. So how did you start covering uh, Islamic extremism uh, throughout your work? Well, I first became interested in Islamic extremism in the early to mid-90s when I was a young reporter in the UK working on domestic news. Uh, I was at the Sunday Times, actually. I'd started on traditional route into journalism, uh, started as a local reporter in South London, uh, straight out of university, and then got on to the nationals, as people did in those days. No formal training whatsoever. Um but I'd ended up on the Sunday Times, mid-90s, and I was working in areas that interested me, which were crime, um, terrorism, more broadly. And we still had some Irish Republican terrorism at the time, just the very end of that. Um, but I was always very interested in going overseas. I'd always wanted to be a foreign correspondent, particularly in the Middle East or the Islamic world. And that, or those interests coincided, if you like, um, with... The arrival in the UK of a range of uh, individuals who later on became fairly notorious, but at the time were almost totally unknown, unknown to journalists certainly, uh, but also pretty much unknown to the security services and police too. Um, These were the people who were coming from Middle Eastern countries which were plunged into violence by the uh, various effect, well, the various factors, but the, the violence of the early 90s, the local violence in places like Algeria, Egypt, Saudi, elsewhere, which were in many ways the perhaps second wave of Islamic militancy uh, that we were seeing, or, or we have seen over the last 30, 40 years. Um, and th- they were all in London, and I thought, there's got to be a story in here. And it really fascinated me, and I became quite deeply involved in reporting the views, lives, um, previous experiences, affiliations of those individuals. Um, that took me into the field to start with. And then when I did finally go overseas, I found myself in exactly the right place to report that subject. 
And what was the reaction from your editors when you came to them and said, this is the story that you wanted to concentrate on? Well, it's very sort of ad hoc. I don't think I ever went to any of my editors and said, look, I want to be really focused on Islamic militancy in the UK or Islamic militants coming to the UK. Um, partly because that kind of vocabulary just didn't really exist at the time. Um, and the, the, the problem, in inverted commas, simply wasn't framed in that way. I just remember doing a series of stories for editors at the time um, on people who were coming out of the, the Middle East, as I say, but it, and and particularly, I think, I mean, it depended on the newspaper I was at, because I was at Sunday Times, which was a fairly right-wing newspaper, uh, and so the line that was taken by my editors, and I was pretty junior and wasn't going to push back, uh, was basically the sort of Daily Mail line of what are these extremists doing here? Um, personally, my interest was much larger, and I spent quite a lot of time talking to people about um, why they were here and what was going on in Algeria and elsewhere. But the, the straight line by the newspaper was a fairly straightforward, uh, these are extremists, they're coming here, do we really want them? Which, frankly, uh, was actually quite a uh, justifiable question to ask, even if the way it was asked may not have been particularly uh, appropriate. And when you were talking to, to these individuals around that time, talking to them about Algeria and, and conflict and other conflicts uh, elsewhere, what were they saying to you? And what, was, what were they saying as their justification and their motivations for getting involved at this stage? Uh, before I come to that, John, let me just go back to the, the previous question. Because I was thinking, it, it, just, it, it wasn't simply the extremist element, the kind of Daily Mail extremists here, do we want them? Mm -hmm. there, were, there were also just cracking tales in there, just really good narratives and some amazing detail that people would come out with about security operations, uh, often run by foreign intelligence services in the UK, particularly the Algerians. Um, the, the Scotland Yard knew nothing about, MI5 knew nothing about, and all of this stuff was coming out about sort of Algerian spooks and agents provocateurs and operations designed to get hold of, for example, a fax machine that was being used at a particular mosque to distribute faxes on behalf of the GIA in Algeria and all of that sort of thing. So there's just some amazing sort of detail on the, the, the world of espionage, for want of a better term, um, in the UK that was completely below the radar at the time. So, so that, what, that was also a, a significant attraction. And that sort of thing is obviously, you know, very attractive to newspapers in terms of actually bringing something new and different to a readership. Um, but the, as for, to go on to the, the question you just asked about the, um, the, the views of them, these people um, that I was talking to, I'm trying to remember who I was talking to. I was talking to the Algerians quite a lot, the Egyptians, Saudis. I mean, I was coming to this incredibly ignorant. Um, and so I, I, it was like a crash course in basic Islamism. Uh, and there was very little written at the time to go to. Uh, there was very little context to be, that I could sort of reach out to in cuttings or anything, almost nothing. Um, and what I was hearing varied 
depending on the interlocutor, obviously, and also was being modulated very carefully by the calculated very carefully by my various interviewees because they were using me often as a way of talking to the British authorities or as a way of talking to people back home. So I know, for example, when I was talking to the Algerians, uh, one of the various Algerian factions, you know, the, the clearance to talk to me in a hotel somewhere around the back of St. John's Wood over a cup of tea um, had gone right up to the top of whichever organisation it was. Um, and then a sort of message had been cleared and it had come back down again. And this was the message they wanted me to put out in my you know, five paragraphs or whatever it was in the Sunday Times that weekend. Um, so that the messages were very, were very um, carefully calibrated. And they were also very calibrated because the individuals were very aware of their very particular or peculiar position in the UK. And this is something I went back into afterwards, uh, 10 years later, um, to try and get to the bottom of this question of Londonistan and whether there was a truce between, uh, as is often alleged by um, West, uh, various people actually, I mean, you can go into that as well, but some, the French often say it, the, a lot of people in the Middle East say it, um, but that the British sort of did a deal with all the various Islamist ideologues who turned up in the 90s. And I, I don't actually think there was a deal. The, the weird thing is, I think the people I was talking to believed that there had been a deal because they simply couldn't conceive of the idea that the British would just let them in and allow them to publish newspapers and send faxes and all the rest of it. Whereas actually, if you talk to the spooks and the cops at the, who were active at the time, it's more that they just really didn't have a handle on who these people were and how influential they might be back home. Uh, so they were they were a bit out of their depth in regards to their understanding of everything that, that was going on. Like, did, or, go on. No, no they, they were utterly out of their depth, yeah. I think. I mean, they had absolutely no idea. I mean, MI5 was... Um, had just spent, you know, the best part of 30 years uh, looking at the IRA mm. primarily as the main threat. Um, MI6, I had limited exposure to um, and dealings with, but it didn't strike me that there was any great input from there, uh, from from Vauxhall, was sort of reaching... Um, five or scotland yard that the police i dealt with at the time had almost no understanding of what was going on and and even much later when i was dealing with police again in in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and those years then there's still the the, the the deep understanding of what islamic militancy was and its roots into the middle east the cultures of the middle east various that they are um, and so forth. The, the understanding was very limited. I mean, I was invited in to talk to Scotland Yard at one point, um, and I'm I'm hardly an expert on in 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 the sense that I should be if I'm going to be going and talking to the British police about you know these things. Um, so uh, it was really really sketchy in terms of their understanding. Um, and so this the idea of the truce, which which sort of encapsulated it for me, was that the the militants 
themselves, the ideologues, believe there must have been a truce uh, because also they felt they, in their own ideology that they had effectively declared a truce uh, because Britain had offered them uh, protection and hospitality and therefore they would be unable, it would have been illegal uh, under their interpretation of the Shariat and Hadith Sunnah, etc., to... Um, to, 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 to be hostile towards their hosts. Uh, the governments of Egypt, elsewhere, Saudi, particularly uh, Algeria, were tearing their hair out, thinking that we had the British definitely done a truth, truth uh, or concluded some kind of agreement. And the French certainly thought we had done. And they wanted Algerian suspects back. Uh, and the British were sort of saying, well, you know, they've got to go to the courts and everything else, and da-da-da-da-da. So, so there was this whole... And, and, and in the middle of it, there were a lot of British officialdom who simply had no real idea what was what was going on. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, fascinating. it's fascinating to think back then about this lack of understanding compared to, to where we are now. With regards to the ideology that was being uh, espoused at the time, do you see... Uh, that there's been a significant evolution in the ideological justification that you were hearing back then to what we what we have today, or uh, what's well, that, I think that, that that debate continues, doesn't it, within jihadist circles? Um, th- th- but it's only one component of a much broader debate. And I think yeah. if there's one massive shift, um, if we're looking at the UK uh, from back then, which is now you know more than two decades ago. Um, it's simply that back then, th- we were talking about a really tiny minority of people with, and this is absolutely crucial, mm. with no broader resonance. I mean, there were more people interested in kind of animal rights extremism than there were in Islamic militancy in the UK. I mean, there were no homegrowns other than the the uh, Kashmiri connection within the Pakistani community. And I used to speak to sort of Indian officials and so forth who would be getting very upset about the supposedly British lax uh, attitude to Lashkar Toiba in the UK, who were certainly present in the UK and were, um, uh, were, were recruiting and were... Um, uh, fundraising, particularly in the Pakistani community, um, but the but so there was a sort of the Kashmiri connection. There were quite a, there were a few British Kashmiris who went to Kashmir. There was one I think died in a suicide attack uh, in the early nineties. But there there were uh, they, and and they were in the mid hundreds in terms of their numbers, and they were they were known on largely to the cops. Uh, who weren't particularly bothered by it, um, but the the, the 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 idea that the whole ideology and identity and culture of Islamic militancy would spread just so widely within the British Muslim community uh, would have was just completely inconceivable at the time. I mean, it was just not yeah. even imagined, and that that was. That's, I, I tried to draw that out in my last book, The New Threat, when just to point out to people who are coming to this relatively recently, um, even in the last decade, that back then, you know, none of this seemed inevitable. I mean, there's a sort of historicizing argument here. There's, you know, the, the, the perspective back then was that, oh, you know, this is a problem that's being blown in from the Middle East, we'll have to deal with it. But the idea that this could catch on among 
you know, a sizable minority in terms of the cultural identification, if not the actual um, activity in violent extremism. Um, that that, that uh, cultural identification identity could become as widespread as it has done would have, would have just been almost nobody would have credited it no no exactly exactly what changed what what was it that, that in your view like look i know it's it's a broad question but was it the spectaculars was it the huge attacks what was it that uh, that changed from back then when it was such a small uh, pocket of people to to what it would be now yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think, as you'd expect me to say, um, I'm not an academic, but still, um, it's a you know very wide range of different factors, ranging from the sort of massive structural ones, such as the coming to age of a new generation within the British Muslim community uh, who had been born here, first, second, even third generation. Um, the collapse of left-wing ideologies um, and their replacement by you know, religious identifications and so forth, or quasi-religious identifications. Um, there, there's that sort of element, but I mean, which I think is important, uh, and you know, we could go into some depth. But uh, I mean, in terms of the more immediate factors, I, I think yes, the spectaculars, particularly 9/11. Followed by the invasion of Iraq, and the combination of the various elements in that immediate 2001 to 2005, 6, 7 period, meant that suddenly, and and obviously digital technology, mm -hmm. um, which uh, I've written about a lot, I think is really important, uh, and. Um, but the, that altogether meant that you had a huge number of people who were being exposed to the ideology, um, both through the internet uh, and, but also through the news at ten. Uh, and I remember talking to uh, some official in the middle of the last decade, and we you know, remember agreeing how. You know, you don't necessarily need a load of sophisticated propaganda, which barely existed at the time, um, given what was to come later uh, in comparison. Uh, you, you just need this constant bombardment of events in Afghanistan, Iraq, Israel, Palestine, so forth, which have now been framed in a very new way and are being communicated uh, in that new way to a demographic that didn't uh, that didn't exist previously um, and once I think one thing that we have learned is once those ideas get established whether it be in the UK US uh, Iraq Afghanistan wherever um, it's very very difficult to even roll them back. Uh, I don't think eradication is possible at all. But you know, to push back against those ideas when they have momentum, when they have appeal, when the structural factors are, factors are there, which guarantees them a degree of traction, uh, it's very, very difficult to fight them. Yeah, and with 
looking at these these wars, when we look at Afghanistan, when we look at Iraq, when you were would have been first covering uh, these groups, the dominance would have been from the Israeli conflict as well as Algeria and and elsewhere. What like has have those gone back into the uh, into the background now, or are they would they still, in your view, have a dominant? Um, motivating factor for these uh, these individuals or is it more has it more been centered around those those post 9-11 wars i think so. i think there are two things aren't there mm. there's there's the immediate and then there's there's the there's the, the the jihadi culture and i use culture in the sort of broadest sense of the world word is the you know the collection of 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 ideas values texts images language vocab you know vestimentary codes um that that, that combine to create the the jihadi identity which clearly has different emphasis depending on where you are um and i think that should be always underlined mm. but um i think that that broad culture um uh now will, will certainly you know, include an awful lot from, say, you know, Abdullah Azam and 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 the fight against the Soviets in the 1980s, uh, but uh, I, I, and the overarching, you know, what used to be called the single narrative of us versus them, mm-hmm. you know, Islam versus the West, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I think the 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 uh, uh, in keeping with the general news cycle these days. The immediate impulses are much, much more short term, um, and I think it's the the the, the, the if it's, it was Syria, uh, still is to an extent, uh, and framed in a completely distorted way. Obviously, then it's Iraq, then it's Afghanistan, and then it then there's a sort of rotating, um, rotating. Uh, um, uh, menu, if you like, of different conflicts that surge into the foreground at any one time and have a particular influence on any one individual, often because of their own background or their their, their personal interests or needs, and of course of of the people around them. Um, so I think the 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 in the early period in the nineties and such like, it was very very local. Uh, in that the Kashmiris were interested in Kashmir, the Algerians in Algeria, and they barely talked about Egypt. In fact, they were often quite disparaging about Egypt, and the Kashmiris were not even really very interested in Afghanistan. Why would they go there? You know, their family was from Mirpur or wherever. Um, and and, and, and that, that has then became steadily much more free-floating with the kind of global narrative that was in a, in a very real sense. Uh, and... Um, and now I think you have that global narrative and then just an, a, a plug-in local connection to whichever is the conflict du jour, if you like. Yeah. Um, like, with all this in mind, in the aftermath of 9-11, in the aftermath of 7-7 as well, do you feel, what do you feel were the, ma- were the, the mistakes, if any, that, not if any, what were the mistakes that were made by the US and UK in particular, as well as the, the broader coalition forces that has that has assisted this? Or do you feel that that, that isn't playing as much of a role? I, I, I'm reflexively 
um, suspicious of the it's all the West's mm. fault argument. Um, I, I mean, it, there's an awful lot of blame that can certainly be uh, apportioned to the West, whether it be, you know, America under George W. Bush or Tony Blair's UK or specific soldiers on the ground in any given situation or, you know, etc., etc. Um, <clears throat> and similarly with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is certainly hugely important, but I don't see as absolutely central to the problem of jihadism in the way that some people do. Um, often people on the far left. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I also don't think it's particularly helpful. Um, and that may just be because my own um, way of working and reporting is just to be instinctively suspicious of any body who's campaigning, mm. um, whether that be right or left. I mean, you know, happily, I've been repeatedly told that I'm a stooge of the suicide bombers uh, and I am supposedly a mouthpiece for Western imperialism as well, <laughs> which is which is fine. I'm very happy about that. That's exactly where I should be. Um, you know, I, I just tend to tell it as I see it and there we are. I don't, I don't think too rigorously about um, what, what you know, whether I should be more ideologically or less ideo uh, ideological about things. Um, so, um, uh, but, you know, all that said, I was in Iraq in, in 03. In fact, I was in Iraq back in the early 90s and, and reporting there then and saw Iraq under Saddam. And I think that's quite a good example um, in that, you know, it didn't start in 03. Uh, and, it, and it's astonished me when I was reporting from Iraq in, in say, 03 or 04, that anybody in the UK would think that we would be, that British forces would be, you know, welcome in a country which had been eviscerated by UN sanctions coming after a particular, two particularly damaging wars and a 20-something year dictatorship. Um that, um, that that the UK would be welcomed when the, the UK was blamed by many people for those sanctions, which had made life appalling, uh, even if actually Stan might have been to blame, that people believed it was the UK's fault. And we sort of turned up. Uh, so I think if there was uh, thinking that we were going to be welcomed, and I think if, so I think if there's anything, and this would go for Afghanistan as well, where I spent time there in the 90s and then, you know, in 01 and, and right the way through to, I mean, I was there years ago um the uh the, the, this blind i think and there are many many mistakes many many faults and we could fill up an hour or two talking yeah. about them and strategic errors in 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 afghanistan and, and and so on um i just reviewed steve cole's brilliant latest book um on the american effort in afghanistan mm. and the pakistani involvement there and so forth um, and, and i mean it's just pitiful this kind of litany of error and atrocity, um, uh, but I think if there was there was anything that jumps out, it was the utter uh, simplicity uh, of and 
a, a naivety of the an ignorance of the idea that in these countries societies communities which were enormously complex which harbored for good or ill deep deeply conflicted at best feelings towards the west that the west could suddenly arrive and be welcomed as saviors yeah. uh, and, and that I, I mean the the sheer ignorance that lay behind that as an idea strikes me as possibly the most important lesson to be learned uh, i mean we could go on talking about resources and strategy and geo strategy and you know oil and all the rest of it um for a long time um and other errors and you know various insurgency doctrines that i saw come and go um and you know, britain's ludicrous sense of its own self-importance in both iraq and afghanistan where once we'd taken on hugely ambition ambitious tasks we then failed and the americans had to basically send in the marines to bail us out i mean all those things we could talk about but I mean, i'm getting increasingly interested now in the lack of historical perspective and lack of historical knowledge and how that could have helped and should help in the future yeah and this is something even within academia now in uh, in recent years there's been people crying out saying we need to have this to frame this in the historical narrative we need to understand what came before it's you can't just look at uh, these threats in isolation these groups in isolation these uh these areas in isolation without understanding the history uh, of it and it's yeah it's the same the same issues arising arising time and time again no matter if it's in journalism in <laughs> geopolitics or elsewhere no absolutely i mean my profession is is, is constitutionally you know, formatted to forget the past. I mean, the, the, the adage is, is it a new story? Well, it's new if your editor thinks it is, or at least he thinks the readers think it is. Um, so, you know, if, if you know, you, there is no, and, and increasingly, with its utterly breathless news cycle and attention spans, which are genuinely shrinking. And I, I mean, I can give you a very good example of how this is. When I started writing these stories, writing about Islamic militancy in you know, relatively serious British newspapers in the mid-1990s, uh, you know, I would rel regularly write 1,200 words, 1,500 words, 2,000 words, 2,500 words. Now, I still, about once a year, get the opportunity to do that. But the standard length for stories now is down to about 500 words now that's not because journalists like writing at 500 words it's because our readers have made it very clear but that is what they are prepared to read yeah. so uh you know that barely allows you the time to say what has happened uh chuck in a couple of quotes substantiate the detail to an extent and then you have to uh but there's no place there for historical context or breadth of profound insight or, or or even background so i think that is a real a real problem oh yeah it's a huge problem and i suppose in the in the guardian you do have the the long read section but yeah you do the majority of the time it's these short 500 word pieces that you're having to get the message across and has your journalistic process had to change because of that uh yeah it does i mean we, we constantly uh as a reporter in the field, you know, you're constantly trying to keep up with 
the technology. And, you know, I started writing very long things with lots of investigation and lots of time for Sunday newspapers. Mm. And I now write fairly short, rapid stuff for daily newspapers. And and that's uh, not by choice. Uh, I mean, if I that's because that's the way the industry is going increasingly uh the the sunday newspapers are much more like daily newspapers used to be uh we don't have in the uk magazines like the new yorker uh or you know the atlantic or very few of them um and those that do don't pay what the new yorker pays um and uh it's it's part of the twitterification of of the news media now that brings substantial advantages as well i mean i'm not you know a luddite uh but one of the disadvantages is that the serious lengthy analysis which perhaps nobody ever read but still was there has migrated into specialist areas uh blogs and websites and so forth but the good thing obviously is that there are absolutely masses of stuff uh, material which is very detailed and is very researched uh that is now easily available to those that um want to look for it so let's you know take the example of west point sentinel you know the ctc uh sentinel which is a fantastic publication um which i've had the great honor of writing for um and is uh, and, and you can just go and get it online and read it, which would never have been the case 10 years ago, let alone 15 or 20, and have access to brilliant thinkers and researchers in pretty much any area from sort of jihadi poetry through to, uh, you had Thomas Heghammer on the mm-hmm. programme I know recently, who's absolutely fabulous scholar and uh, who, you know, happily you can find his work and others like his him uh, work of others like him uh, really easily and now that's great but the price to pay is that the specialist stuff stays in the specialist zone and the non-specialist stuff gets more and more squeezed uh, and there's not much in between the two yeah. but one of the ways you've gotten around this is through the publication of of your books which a lot of list our listeners would would know you well for and and, uh, and be thanking you for as well especially well, that's nice you'd be especially well known for your your books on al-qaeda and this new book the the new threat from islamic militancy nominated for the the orwell prize as well mm. what would be your what was your motivation in saying okay i need to do to write books on this and why did you choose the topic uh, um they're, they're, all, they're all slightly different um the, 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 the first AEQ book, the Al-Qaeda book, the red one, mm. which happily was and still is quite well read um, and was on lots of syllabuses for a while, reading lists for a long time, sometimes still is around and lots of people said nice things about. Um, that was my first book and um, that was simply, I'd been working in Pakistan and Afghanistan. When, when I decided to go off and be a foreign correspondent, I went to Pakistan in about 1997. Mm. And um, after, obviously, it was a very good place to be four years later. Uh, and I was working in that period on the on bin Laden, al-Qaeda, and the Taliban. I went to 2001, uh, sorry, when 9-11 happened uh, in 2001, uh, I was there and I was covering it. And... Um, 
I got back from covering the early months of the Afghan war and such like in, I don't know, it must have been June, May or June or something, 2002, and, and actually was able to read what had been written about the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and all that stuff, and just found that so much of it was just total rubbish. Yeah. I mean, it just, I don't know what it was based on. And the idea that, you know, bin Laden was sitting in a cave and, you know, organising pretty much any terrorist attack anywhere in the world um, was just so obviously completely wrong. And I thought and felt quite strongly it was so dangerous because it clearly implied that you could knock off one guy or at least one organisation and the whole problem of Islamic militancy will disappear. Um, and I thought, I've got to write something. I've got to kind of empty my notebooks and um, I've got to write something about it. I've got to write what I think is Al-Qaeda and, and uh, just why I think this is wrong, this idea. Um, and I think I find that's the best way to write a book, when you find something you think is wrong and then you kind of attack it, uh, which is possibly, I don't know whether that's academic process, but it's certainly often journalistic process. Um, the, the, and, and so, so I, wrote the, I wrote it very fast. I wrote it in five or six months, sort of um, pulling in all the documents I could find, and still there's very little on the internet, but I remember finding the 1998 embassy bombings trial um, transcripts that somebody had put online, that was very, they were very helpful. And, and all my own reporting from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Algeria, and elsewhere in the Middle East and stuff all went into it. Uh, and, and, I, and, and I sort of made my argument and, um, and, you know, and, it, and it came out at the moment when everybody had suddenly started thinking, hold on a minute, uh, we're not sure about what we're being told about bin Laden and, and Al-Qaeda, and we have been told over the last six months or a year. And, then, so, and so my, it came out at exactly the moment when people were looking for a new and fresh perspective. And, and that's what I think I gave them, uh, an alternative perspective. And, and so it, was very, it, it went very well, um, and I think made a difference to the debate and the way people framed the problem um, which was a positive thing. Um, the the second book was <laughs> was the Road to Kandahar. And that's you know that's a journalistic kind of memoir basically. That an awful lot of reporters who had covered Afghanistan and Iraq by the time they got to 05 were absolutely knackered, fairly traumatized, uh, and had notebooks rammed with lots of stuff that hadn't made into the newspapers that um, people or publishers thought people wanted to read. I'm not sure they did, actually. But if you look at that period, there's a whole spate of journalistic books as reporters got fairly decent advances to write their kind of my war in, you know, delete where inapplicable. Um, and and make some points. Now, I mean, I used it partly as a vehicle, too, to argue for partly what we were just talking about, that, you know, you have to look at them, the Islamic world not as a monolith, that there's a lot of complexities there, that, uh, you know, identity is not simply based on religious affiliation or, you know, I, I mean, I made some broader points, but basically it was one of those journalistic, and then I, and then I, and, you know, what I did on my summer holidays. But, um, but I quite enjoyed writing it, and, and it did quite well. Um, but the, the one I really enjoyed was the 9-11 wars, which, and that's, that is my, still my favourite, which is big. I mean, it's 600, 700 pages. But that was in, I started that in about 2009. And I, I just wanted, to, you know, I, I wanted to write a history. I, I love history. I've always wanted to write 
to be, I'd much rather be a historian, except I can't handle sitting in the libraries. Um, and the pay is rubbish. Uh, <laughs> and, and the, the um, unless you're Niall Ferguson or something. Um, so, so I, I just, I just wanted to, I was just thinking, what, you know, what will people make of all of this in 10 years' time or 20 years' time? Um, this incredible phenomenon that I've been privileged enough to have a kind of front row seat on, um, or four, because I, I was happy, I was in Iraq, I was in Afghanistan, and I was in Europe, I was based in Paris for a couple of years and doing European stuff, in, and in the UK a lot, in that kind of 05, 06, 07 period where things were quite big in the UK, and still going to Afghanistan, still going to Iraq. Um, so, um, the I could see this kind of narrative arc. I could see how it all sort of shifted in 05, 06. I just wanted to write this kind of definitive, authoritative, very ambitious idea. But anyway, big book with lots of footnotes and basically a history. And and, and very, I was really, I mean, some people didn't like it and quite a lot of people did. Um, but there were some really good reviews or reviews that really pleased me that came from historians saying that it was basically a history book and they kind of got it um <laughs> what i was trying to do um so that remains my favorite uh and 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 again it was partly born of just wanting to put something out there that had a kind of weight and i thought it was also a lot of fun because i went back to i went back to a lot of episodes where i'd either been on the ground and just seeing not seeing the big picture <laughs> um or new stuff had come out that explained why things happened or new people were talking or were prepared to, prepared to talk to me. Um, so you could fill in a lot of the gaps about, and there was a lot of the time I was thinking, Oh, so, okay, that's what happened. Oh, that makes sense. That's why this person was there. And, um, anyway, and then the new, the new threat was basically ISIS and what does ISIS mean and how does ISIS fit into the broader picture? Um, and at the time, um, I had absolutely no intention of writing another book about Islamic militancy because I'd kind of said all I wanted to say. But then uh, ISIS and some publishers were very persuasive between them and uh, my uh, agent, um, who all twisted my arm. Uh, and, and I was very pleased to have done it. And again, in that book, I really wanted to try and provide context and particularly history. And one of the things I emphasized was how I think the uh, now it's less original thing to say but even if it was original at the time which may well not have been but the um, the, the, the point being that for the Islamic militants particularly the ones coming from Britain it wasn't the faith that was important it was the history and it was the idea that once in their view uh, you know, those cemented uh, horsemen galloping across the Middle East with their black flags had brought honour and dignity to Muslims. Now, the fact that they almost certainly were on foot and they had spears was is not pertinent to the appeal. Um, but I wanted to bring that I you know that bring out the the nostalgia. Uh, or rather the sense of empowerment that that would bring some kid in Portsmouth who, who is, you know, yearning for a, 
a reason to feel good about his immigrant background or his dad's religion or whatever um and how how powerful that was as an as a factor um and so that and so that so that was the fourth book but I, I, I have a list of about 20 that i want to write at any one moment but uh, i've got a day job and kids and you know life <laughs> as, as you know it's not quite that simple uh, they all they all get in the way of, of writing the next 20 books all right but uh no each of them has has made a huge contribution not just uh not just for the general readership but i know with it, speaking on behalf of acad uh, on behalf of numerous academics that i've spoken to they've really made a huge contribution if you t look at the, as you were talking about the reviews of the 9-11 wars you you look at someone like daniel byman he calls it a monumental job in his foreign policy uh, review of mm. it and actually and like and so many people who are widely respected were speak so highly of the work that you've put out and one of the things actually i wanted to touch on with uh, the 9 11 wars in particular is you talk about so we were mentioning earlier on the misunderstanding of the societies in which the us and the uk were were waging wars and you were talking about the uk a while back but also you talk about how there was a misunderstanding from al-qaeda in relation to the to the, to the places where they were uh, engaged in conflict as well and that they were often disorganized and fractious uh, what was yeah it? absolutely no i mean i think i think but you i'll let you no but i was going to say i think i think the, the, the misconceptions are on both sides i mean and, and this is you know of all well it was a quite interesting conversation with uh mini kalimachi at the at the new york times a, a year or so ago though I, I was having with her about how, you know, for the first kind of, certainly for me, first sort of 10 years of writing about Al-Qaeda and Islamic militancy, I spent my whole time saying, no, 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 you've got to disaggregate. You know, th these are not, they're not all taking a direct order. They don't carry membership cards. Mm. You know, this is not, this is a new type of organization. And I think one thing that's quite important, I mean, one of the things I'm looking at at the moment, I'm really interested in is the 70s and 80s and terrorist organizations back then and so forth. And coming, looking at that, I can now see how, because I came to this so fresh and I came to this without any academic background, I did a history degree, I didn't even do a master's, you know, um, and, and the history degree was mainly sort of 17th century Europe. Uh, I, 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 I was coming to this completely new. And so, when everybody, when I suddenly saw Al Qaeda, I didn't try and fit it into, you know, a pre pre-existing schema uh, that might have been, uh, you know, influenced by Abu Nidal organization or the PFLP or the IRA or whoever it might have been. I mean, I, I, and what I saw was very chaotic and, uh, or at least informal and you know based on personal relationships rather than institutional relationships and i saw those personal relationships being mistaken for institutional relationships very frequently and i saw those organograms and all the rest of it now i mean there was a there was a, a, a quite a wide range of people talking in that period in the early years after 2001 about al-qaeda who who you could put on a scale of kind of extreme disaggregation through to extreme aggregation if you like now i sat quite a long way down the disaggregation line someone like peter bergen who is fantastic and i huge respect for you know happy to count as a friend and colleague and all of this is 
um, it would be sort of in the middle. And then there are lots of people down the sort of instinctive aggregation end. You often in policy making or in or as public politicians, uh, or in uh, security, because they're much happier with that aggregation. So for 10 years, I spent a long time saying, no, no, disaggregate, disaggregate. These guys are acting for personal motives very often. They're not just being brainwashed. They're not all that stuff. Um, you know, these are now well-rehearsed debates. You know, uh, they are, if you like, in inverted commas, lone wolves, um, or quite close to it. And then about two or three years ago, it, it all changed round. And I suddenly started saying quite a lot of the time, now hold on a minute, you've, now you've gone too far. Um, and and the, the, the ISIS thing, uh, particularly with ISIS and particularly with, you know, Paris and, and, uh, and, and Berlin and Nice and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I, I started saying, hold on, you know, we've gone, now, lone wolves has become the kind of go-to word for politicians, policymakers, security people, because in a sense, it it, it uh, allows them to explain the failure, because they're very difficult to find and all the rest of it. But actually, if you looked at all those supposed, sorry, not all those, but many, a substantial proportion of all those attacks designated lone wolves, labelled lone wolves. They were, or at least they had, and people like Paul Gill have done fantastic work on this and lots of others, but they all have an entourage. They're all connected to broader social networks. They're, they're all, you know, they've got their friends, they've got their family, they leak, uh, half the street know what they're doing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, to conceive them as lone wolves means that you're, again, and this takes us back to my objection to the original problem with making al-Qaeda totally responsible for everything, it takes us away from the idea that there's a broader culture and a broader phenomenon. Um, so, so you, you know, there's this sort of pendulum effect where, you know, the, 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 the discourse goes one way and I kind of go the other way mm. and then the discourse goes that way and then I sort of find myself swinging in the other direction. Um, which is, I, I don't know, I mean, I don't really think about it very much, but that, that's certainly what seems to have happened. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's I, I can completely understand where you're coming from uh, with with both sides. With, and and at both at both times, I can I can see. But can, can I just say also? I think this is, I just wanted to say this because that, that now one thing that's massive change is 15 years ago uh, there was almost no one. Well, no, no, that's not true. There were there were lots of terrorist experts. Mm. There were very few people who were really deep in the weeds with the Islamic extremism stuff. Mm. Um, and now. It's uh, it's just amazing how many brilliant scholars there are, people doing incredible work on uh, terrorism generally, radicalization, so on and so forth. So I, you know, I, I'm I'm profoundly aware that my expertise is is really pretty superficial in a lot of these areas, and there are people who. I mean, there always were, as I say, but there are people particularly now who are just doing extraordinary kind of detailed work and have a fantastic grasp of, you know, social and psychological theories of radicalization or otherwise, and have got, you know, their PhD in Tunisian Islamism or whatever it might be. And I am, I'm, I'm a real generalist. Um, and the only, you know, I have been doing it for a long time, but I mean, or looking at the problem for a long time, but um, I'm very aware that my my role, in a sense, is to 
as an investigative journalist to dig out stuff to try and find stuff that other people don't get and those sorts of things to report the news um but also to provide a kind of bridge between the academic worlds uh, who are explaining and understanding so much of this so well and the general public who are still often pretty misled uh, by a, a, an awful lot of information or disinformation that comes their way. Yeah, no, and it's it there's there's a place for all those those levels of analyses and there there's need for for more of it on all, on all sides one of the one of the things I obviously now when i was introducing you where i introduced you as the africa correspondent uh, of the guardian and yeah. one of the biggest threats that we see uh, at at the moment comes from from africa when you look at boko haram when you look at al shabab other groups like this so with your with your Africa correspondent hat on, but also your this interest in history, what what should we know? What what is it that isn't being said uh, generally that would give us a greater understanding about these threats? And uh, do you feel that it is uh, it's still largely been ignored? I, I think the I I, I I think it'd be I can think it'd be exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Neither Boko or Al Shabaab currently, or even AQIM and various ISIS and various other outfits in the Sahel, uh, none of them have any substantial track record of a long-range attacks. Yeah. I mean, there have been a few, but uh, and the links are often tendentious. But uh, most of the attacks are on local interest. Now, clearly, there's a progression. You know. Uh, groups usually start with attacks on local local interest and they move to international local interest and then they end up with international international interest so i mean there's a progression there but uh, it's not an inevitable progression and and so far you know the the dynamics aren't aren't necessarily playing out that way um the, the thing that always strikes me when you're on the ground and this is the this is the i think the real crux for the policy makers and so forth um, and, uh, is that when you get on the ground, you, so, you see very clearly that what's really important in Somalia are the clans uh, and, a, a, and poor governance and a fight for resources and basically a conflict, you know, one that involves Islamic militants, but yeah, a, a conflict. Um, and in other parts of the Sahel, uh, you have, for example, the herders versus pastorists uh, conflicts, which are profoundly exacerbated by climate change and a lack of governance, etc., etc., etc. Fill in those gaps, um, uh, and the, the the local context, the, the the micro context in every conflict, and not just particularly in Africa, but everywhere, is absolutely fundamental. Um, and there is just a massive problem, and there, or there has been for you know, those long as I've been looking at this, between that fundamental truth that the conflicts are driven by individual animosities, community needs and uh, tensions, um, moving up a little bit, kind of provinces, then possibly at state level, various factors. Um, the the the, the 
tension between or the contrast between that granular analysis and the big picture stuff, which is what you get in Western capitals, particularly Washington. And there have been all sorts of attempts to kind of overcome that um, fundamental contrast. So, you know, David Petraeus and the late last decade counterinsurgency doctrine was sort of one of them. I mean, I remember listening to American captains on patrol, actually, since we trudged around Logar province or Hellmand or somewhere, um, talking about, you know, culture as a force multiplier, which was straight out of the Petraeus playbook. And that's that was sort of one effort to bridge that fleeting effort to bridge that gap wasn't particularly successful for various reasons but you know that fundamental dichotomy that fundamental tension between the big think stuff and then the granularity that actually drives individuals into violent extremism um, that seems to me to be the the, the the biggest policy or strategy issue in in, in the analysis and policy making vis-a-vis Africa and its various wars uh, or militant groups at the moment. Um, the same could be said for anywhere else. And I mean, there's always this. I mean, we had this in Iraq, we had this in Afghanistan, we've had it you know, in Maghreb, the, 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 this particular problem. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure how you overcome it, um, but... Um, to take us back to where we were talking, what we were talking about earlier, I think a degree of historical knowledge on the part of policymakers and so forth would be a great help. Yeah, oh, hugely so, definitely. Now, I'm, I'm conscious not to to take up too much of your time, but at the beginning, we you mentioned about the role of technology and the role that uh, expanded social media has played uh, at the moment. What? What way do you, what effect do you see uh, the changes in technology and the changes in communication having on this threat? Or do you feel it, it might be exaggerated? No, I don't think it is exaggerated. I think what's exaggerated is the internet radicalizes people. Mm. Um, which I, I think most people, you know, have kind of moved beyond now. Uh, and that was another one that was great for, for, for you know, dodgy governments and nasty spooks and such like uh, i remember remember being at a conference in saudi in the, about 10 years ago where there was a discussion about various middle eastern countries and their problems with extremism and uh, the egyptian representation blamed the entirety of islamic militancy in egypt on the internet um, you know, I mean, they just admitted absolutely nothing else. Uh, so I think that the internet can be a useful excuse. So I, do, I wouldn't want to over, uh, you know, overplay it, but mm. I think still it's, a, it's obviously of huge importance. And I think what really interested me, and, and I got a nice chunk of my newspaper to write about it the other uh, last year, um, was is how the the because of technology the structure of militant groups and the structure of media organizations has evolved in parallel. Um, so you know, 30 years ago, media networks and TV networks and um, uh, militant groups um, 
were pretty hierarchical. Mm-hmm. And, and that was largely determined by the technology. If you know, all that stuff was heavy studios, cameras, um, massive broadcast apparatus to actually, you know, feed the stuff out uh, to people uh, so that it, they could actually see it. Uh, it was all very high. It needed a base. It needed a hierarchy. You needed somebody making a decision what would go on air, what wouldn't. It all went through news editors and they were controlled by you know, even more important editors and et cetera, et cetera. And it was, it was all it, very resource heavy. Um, now, as the resources have become lesser and lesser for uh, media organizations and also for terrorist organizations, those hierarchical organizations have got flatter and flatter and flatter. And if you look now at you know, ISIS 3.0 or whatever, the new ISIS that we're looking at possibly or actually what i think is going on which is a, you know, a general disaggregation into a whole series of interconnected networks where actual affiliation is slightly arbitrary if you look at that and you look at um the global media scene you see something very similar i mean you know the global media scene is is, is dominated by a kind of digital dozen of real behemoths or any big groups which is really you know, I mean, the biggies are kind of Facebook, Amazon, Google in terms of platform, and then, you know, a few major publishers. I mean, you could sort of find parallels within the world of violent extremism. But you also have this huge world of, you know, freelancers, um, uh, citizen journalists. I mean, is a citizen journalist like a journalist lone wolf, perhaps? I mean, do you see what I mean? I, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I joke, but I mean, it's actually very, very similar. I mean, you know, you used to have to go and do a training, do training, be part of an organisation. You'd get a press card. Uh, you'd have editors. You'd have colleagues. You'd have a desk. You know, you'd be a journalist. But if you don't need to be part of an organisation, you don't have a press card. You don't actually have any formal training or anyone checking what even what you do. You just follow some broad principles that you kind of think of journalism, but might actually be much closer to quite aggressive campaigning. Uh, then you might be a citizen journalist. And now, you know, you could change that, transpose that directly onto loan attackers or whatever you want to call them, in a very similar way. So I think that's really interesting. What has allowed that? Well, it's digital technology. I mean, it's 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 that's absolutely fundamental to the evolution evolution of both and i think you know it takes us back to the absolute critical truth which is that terrorist organizations are basically i wouldn't say they're media organizations but transmission of their message to the widest possible public or at least the public that they are most interested in at any one moment is still as it always has been the primary motivation the primary role the primary goal of violent extremists using terrorist tactics and do you see us then on uh moving towards the stage where there would be terrorist groups live streaming their their own attacks and stuff is that the next <laughs> yeah, but that's, yeah that, that well i think we're almost there aren't we i mean we've mm-hmm. had incidents of facebook live stream used and we've had other uh, very very close to a kind of full set piece um uh, live streamed terrorist attack in sort of technicolor, uh, and I, I think I think that's an inevitability. And I, and when I wrote about it, I, I thought 
one thing I really wanted to pull out was the responsibility of all of us. I mean, one thing that really struck me was how so many of the images that now terrorise us, for want of a better uh, option, uh, sorry, word, are, are filmed by passers-by, by the victims, mm. by people involved in the attacks. Uh, or at the very least, it's sort of security camera footage. Um, but often, it's people, it's onlookers. So, I was. I, I, it struck me because of the Bataclan attackers and, and the Paris attackers in November 2015. The um, why didn't they have cameras with them? Why didn't they do what many other groups since Hezbollah in the early 80s had done and sort of embed someone with a camera? Particularly now, why didn't they just use their phones? And I thought probably because they didn't need to, and they didn't need to. You know, I mean, other people took those images and and circulated them. And the fact that we're so accustomed to seeing these kind of images is another massive, massive change from the early 90s. I mean, I can remember, I wrote a story about it for the for Sunday Times when I was back in the, in, in the mid-90s, about tapes, cassettes, audio tapes, of an ambush that was circulating in, I think, Finsbury Park Mosque, actually, uh, back then, uh, or certainly among the kind of Algerian community in London. And it was a, it was an attack on an army patrol or something in Kabylia, in the, you know, the Kabylia Mountains in, in the mid-90s. And, you know, it was just, you could just hear people shouting, like, about gunfire and some shouting, and, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was considered, you know, cutting edge, pretty extreme. We wrote a story about it. I mean, you know, compared to now, the level of tolerance, even on mainstream news websites, uh, it, it, for for graphic imagery or even for violent ideological statements, is extraordinary. Yeah, huge. Or like even like if you look at the the murder of Lee Rigby, the power of that was accentuated uh, so much by those images, by that video taken by. Uh, by someone not involved, <laughs> someone who's just there. Taken by the, taken by a victim. Yeah. I mean, that's what's so extraordinary. I mean, the point of terrorism is to terrorise, to, <laughs> to, 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 you know, to induce irrational fear, effectively, in a large number of people, ordinary people, the better to change policy makers' views, effectively. Uh, and there you have somebody who's just walking by, who took the image, and it's that image with the bloodied hands of the murderer held aloft, um, which, uh, in fact, it's more than just one picture. It's a whole, it's a clip, and they, that's, that 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 has become the iconic image of that of that attack. So, I mean, as a force multiplier uh, for terrorism, clearly digital technology is immensely powerful. I'm not saying anything particularly new there, mm. but our failure to understand that and i don't think legislation is the answer um but i think that, that i'm astonished by the public tolerance of those kind of images i mean one you'd sort of imagine that everybody just go well we just don't show that because it's not very helpful but no that's not not the age we're living in no exactly think. just think not 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 that long ago they were uh, disc- wouldn't even let Jerry Adams's voice on uh, on TV, but now we've got we've got all this. It's uh, yeah, it's a no, it's extraordinary. It? But, and, I mean, we're quite good at the Guardian. I mean, you know, my editor is very is, is 
is very vigilant. The editor-in-chief has been very, very clear about what we show, what we don't yeah. show when we're running stuff and, and has moved very quickly when somebody's gone a bit too far in her view and so forth. Um, uh, and I don't want to sound holier than now, but there are other major news organisations that take a, a much more liberal position, let's say. Yeah, no, exactly. Before we, we go, Jason, I just want to ask you, you're obviously someone who's excelling in the field of journalism, but also you're aware of uh, what's going on in academia as well. You've mentioned the work of Thomas Hegammer, Paul Gill and others uh, throughout today's uh, chat. What do you feel from your journalistic experiences are the questions that academics are not tackling that you feel would be worthwhile in addressing um and it's not asking you to tell academics what to do but for what do you feel is the uh would be would be a worthwhile avenue uh, from your experience to address in future research yeah that's a really really good question um um i th i think it's more I, I think there's a hugely comprehensive amount of work being done at the moment. Um, I find a lot of it, partly because I'm not an academic, but I think also because of the nature of some of the research, I find it absolutely impossible to access. I mean, in terms of reading it, um, uh, I mean, in terms of it, 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 where it's pitched, it's talking to, this is not a new criticism of academia but actually I find it quite difficult to access anyway because it's I'm not a member of any libraries and uh, kind of big academic libraries and uh, I, I can't pay $60 to read an article um, or $180 to for a collection of you know essays or something so actually physically accessing it is quite difficult sometimes but more generally a lot of it is extremely noodly and now it should be in many ways but uh, you know some of the kind of um, statistical analysis of terrorist frequencies or so forth, I find extremely difficult to digest. Um, and what I would like to see is two things. I'd like to see much more joined up thinking uh, and much more joined up um, analysis, if you like, which uh, would be more you know, interdisciplinary, uh, disciplinary, um, more uh, broad-ranging more perhaps more creative than scientific in its approach um and also i'd like to see it better explained and academics rightfully complain that journalists know very little about the subject um but that the fault is on both sides uh, in that uh, academics could do a lot to you know i'd like to see with every article i'd like to see a 500 word sort of accessible general public abstract mm. as well as an academic abstract and somehow get that into you know the guardian's comedies free section or huffington post or just be tweeted out or onto some facebook page somewhere or into the you know new york times blog or the washington post blog or something and and, and get that out somehow and communicate it better uh, many academics have said that's not their job, but uh, in the same way, I think it's my job to try and read as much of their stuff as possible. It'd be nice if they thought a little more about trying to reach out to as much of a public as possible too. 
Yeah, and that's actually been one of the aims of this podcast series is to make this uh, academic work accessible. And we 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 understand that it's it's sometimes uh, physically inaccessible, inaccessible, but also in relation to the to the depth of the the work and the the way it's uh, it's portrayed. So it's it's been sort of our aim to be that citizen journalist in a way to to try and 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 deal with these topics. But anyway, Jason. I'd, Thank you so much for, for being today's guest on the pod. It's been, uh, I could chat to you for hours about this, uh, but it's, it's been great. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing which of the no those 20 book ideas come out next. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, I'll see if any publishers listening. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks very, very much. It's a, it's a great pleasure. And it's, it's, it's really a, a, a wonderful opportunity to talk about uh, my work and talk to a broader and informed audience and somebody as uh, knowledgeable and perspicacious as yourself so thanks very much cheers and for anyone who's uh listening into this to this episode for the first time be sure to check out our previous episodes they can be found in your uh podcast stream at the moment and follow us on twitter at t-e-r-c-u-e-l and tweet at us with the hashtag talking terror but until the next time goodbye <laughs>